Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. So, good morning today. We have with us Andrew, our friend, Andrew Hormala, who has been coming to Crested Butte for the Winter Tech Forum, Forum and before the Java Posse Roundup for many, many, years. many years. Yeah, yeah. and um, we're going to do something a little different this time, which is instead of asking you for your employment history, which is very Actually, it doesn't even, it's, it's inappropriate for you because you're trying to do, you're trying to look at different ways of organizing and structuring and everything. Yep. What we're going to ask you is what is your history of interests? You know, what, oh, what have you been interested in? And I know you're interested in lots of stuff. So mostly yep. things that, you know, are germane to where we're trying to get. That's, that, that's an awesome question. Um, so... So actually, so history of interests, because it started with compute. Like when I was very young, my dad got a computer. So we we really early on when I was dead young, we had a ZX Spectrum because I grew up in the UK. So maybe UK listeners will remember the ZX Spectrum. We had a ZX Spectrum, which I used to program. Then I got uninterested in that and went into like role playing and comics and stuff. Then went off and did a bunch of other stuff. But when I got back, when I got to university, I did... I did psychology at university, which might come up again because it's kind of human beings and interactions and stuff is really interesting to me. But I was doing psychology and I took, in my final year, I took a module in AI. And this is when neural networks were coming in before they got all mathematical and, and, and graphs and all that kind of stuff. And I had to learn to program in C, which I failed at because it was terrible and my project failed. But I had to learn to code and that's the first time I properly learned to code. And I learned to code on a on a Sun Microsystems machine. So then after that, I then went to travel abroad and made coffee in, in Canada. But then I thought, I need to, this IT thing is big. This is 1998, 99. The internet thing is taking off. I'd been on the internet at, at university on a Sun Microsystems workstation. So you got thought, in just in time for the dot-com yeah, crash. Just in time. So literally, I got hired. Within three months, we got flown to Silicon Valley for this big thing with Scott McNeely in a massive barn where he was like, the, the internet is going to take over. There was a presentation, just probably this is old enough that it's not. There was a presentation called the dot-com fox, and it was like salespeople. If, 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 if two people walk into your office and one person has a suit and a briefcase and the other person has green hair and a skateboard, who do you give the money to? Who do you give the sun service to? And the correct answer was the kid on the skateboard with the green hair because right, this stuff was taken off. So I was there. We were like, I was having lunch, dinner with people who were paper millionaires. The share price was going up. Within a year and a half, everybody was, the first round of redundancies hit and it was all crash. But that was my first first job. But so then I was very interested. And I, then I was just interested in software and like just being a good dev and like just, you know, learning how to write code. And it was all Java at those days. And then, so then in the fifth round of redundancies at Sun, I left. Um, took voluntary redundancy and then joined a consultancy, Capgemini. And that's when I started coming out to Crested Butte because I convinced my boss to pay for trips to a, a conference with with no discernible um, discernible kind of goal apart from a bunch <laughs> right. of people talking to each other. There's nothing you could say you were going to get out of it exactly. concretely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, obviously, yeah, when Gemini. I joined Capgemini, my first my first colleague said, oh, there's this podcast called the Java Posse. You need to listen to it. So I listened to that and I got started. 
And so then, because of that, I just thought I can, this being a really good dev is something I can, and understanding how languages work and all this kind of stuff. Because I'd done psychology, I hadn't done computer science. So I thought I can get good at this. Then I joined Capgemini, and then I realized that Agile was beginning to take off, which I know you both talk about a lot, but like that kind of, the idea was interesting. The first ever gig I did was a DSDM project. So I think when I listened to the Dan North episode yesterday, Dan was like, there used to be loads of flavors. My first flavor was DSDM. So we did that. that what does that stand for? I don't know. So I, just, I can't even remember. It was oh, you just internalized the... Yeah, DSDM. The, the yeah, I can't yeah, remember, I can't remember it. what it was. But it's like Crystal and Scrum and all those kind yeah. of things. Did you do uh, the star methodology or whatever when you were at Sun? No. Was that... Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, own. we didn't. But like when I was at Sun... So that, that was in other parts of Sun, but we did... I was in the engineering part, not necessarily, not so much the software part. The service, so we yeah. did Six Sigma. Okay. So I'm a green belt in Six Sigma, which is interesting now, right? Because now Lean's coming in, and now you're like, oh yeah, Six, Six Sigma comes from Lean, and I I was completely oblivious to this. So then I was was at um, Cap, and I was dead interested in software and just writing software, and then help, and and slowly I became aware through Agile, less interested in like specifics of Agile, but the dynamics of organizing human beings around code bases to get the maximum value out of the human beings for the benefit of the code base. That became super interesting to me in the kind of Your social psychology background, like all yeah, of a sudden became like, useful for, yeah, it sounds exactly. like, it sounds like you were trying to fool people into working harder. Yeah. Well, like, well, I was, I was interested because I realized I'd been on projects where people had worked insanely hard and nothing good had happened. And I worked on other projects where people seemed to just be having fun and we were shipping stuff all. And like, it was, I couldn't figure out there was like zero correlation between the two. Um, and so then, then, then I kind of did that. Then I got, um, through no fault of my own, I got from probably cause being a white kind of middle-aged heterosexual male, I got promoted to become a manager of a team and that was not part of the career plan. But because having been to the Java Posse Roundup as it was, and now now the WinterTech Forum, I'd spoken to you, Bruce, and you'd introduced me to trust organizations and, and all these kind of things. And that seemed to me like a perfect way to kind of have a team that I was nominally responsible for, but without actually having to tell anyone how to do or what to do anything. And so I basically did loads of experiments to find out if this stuff that I'd read about in books that you told me about worked. And it did work. And so then I got super excited. I was like, this is cool. You can get out of people's way and so they got... can be awesome again. <laughs> and so most importantly, you can be lazy. Yeah, exactly. You can, like, literally, like you've said this many times, Bruce, right? For planning the, the, the unconferences, the open spaces, the less you do, which is hard work, doing nothing is really terrifying. But the more you get out of the way and set the scene, right? There is some kind of, I used to work with a, pro a delivery manager called Mel, who's awesome. So shout out to Mel. But, um, she would talk about rolling the pitch. There is there's a lot of rolling the pitch. There's setting the scene. There's making sure the mindset's right. And for our non-European listeners, yeah. you're referring to uh, pitch being a uh, soccer pitch. Everybody right? yeah, soccer pitch. Lasso now, so everybody knows what a pitch is. Oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Now, right. we're, so, yeah, now like, we're cultured. Yeah, exactly, right? And it's like it's like you get the what big roller, right? so you just roll make it flat. The what is roll that? the pitch. Yeah, so it basically that? means, you know, like, because actually, yeah, like everyone in America plays an AstroTurf. But when we play on real grass here, it gets churned up, right? It's all this, this sods and everything. Like someone's played golf on it, right? And so they put all the sods back and they roll it to make it flat. 
so the ball bounces properly. Okay. So Mel would point we, out there's a lot of it's like a steamroller. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly it's a steamroller. <laughs> so you're flattening the the yeah, playing so you're ground. So Flatty, it, it, so nothing unexpected happens, right? It's kind of clear. Right. It's nice and 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 so this Mel was very good at this. She'd be like, you know, it looks like no one's doing and nobody's doing anything, but there's a lot of stuff going on, and that's mm-hmm. very interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. figuring out what the essential is it, one of the things I've noticed is, you know, sometimes people will go, oh, no, no, I have to do all this and this and this and this. And it's like, you go, well, is that really essential or is it just, you know, cultural compulsiveness that one does all these other things? If you can figure out what the essentials are and do those, then you can put in just enough effort to make the thing work and then yeah. hand it over to whoever is participating. Yeah, and this is and this is the most exciting thing is because people talk about high performance. I got interested in systems because again I'd done biology and psychology and loads of stuff started coming together. I got I, I got obsessed with domain driven design. So if we can, I can talk about that for months if you want. Um, but like, what became interesting was like you say, it's kind of dist- distilling out the essential pieces and then leaving as much space as possible. And clearing space is important so that that you can have the high performing team or you could build the awesome software all these kind of things and 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 so i've done lots of played lots of roles in all of those things but but watching that and sitting back and trying to figure out how things work and because i'm a consultant so i'm very lucky so then i left capgemini and went to thoughtworks which is so interesting you, like oh, no, capgemini but it was real more quick go back to you became a manager because of the way you looked essentially you looked like a manager and um which is yeah whole nother conversation but you you then instead of just doing it the way that you were supposed to do it the way that it was supposed to look you said how do i make this work for me and for the people that work for me and i think that that psychology background must have played a big part of in how you kind of developed your philosophy and you know you mentioned the the books and stuff from bruce yeah yeah. i'd like to hear more about that like how do you you said you did experiments. Do you have an example of an experiment or something? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I've got some good examples. So, it wasn't it, my. So, it wasn't my degree. My degree was reductionist, rats in boxes, de- dissecting worms level of psychology. So, not the kind of any useful kind of psychology. Um, but I got frustrated that we didn't do the other stuff. So, I kind of read about it. The thing that motivated me to do it was the utter blind fear of being terror of being responsible for a, a group of human adults whose life I could make better or worse at the drop of a hat by saying something and they would do it because I had some high, abstract, semi-irrelevant hierarchical advantage over them. Yeah. So it was mainly fear. But also I was lucky, as my wife pointed this out to me when it happened, I still had a day job, so I was still a consultant, but I now had 36 consultants to look after as their line manager. So I didn't even have time. So she said, it's lucky. You know, if you had three or four, you could micromanage them and make their lives hell and your life hell. Nobody can micromanage 36 people. So you need plan B, right? You need another alternative. Yeah. And I'd read a few of these things that Bruce had mentioned. So things like like reinventing organizations by Lalu and trust organizations and holacracy. And I'd read books about um, like Tony Shea at uh, what's his, the, the Zappos. Zappos, yeah. yeah. I'd read books about Patagonia. Maybe I hadn't read all of them, but I'd read these things. Um, and I was like, this. I wonder if you can try this stuff. So I tr- I set about trying to figure things out. And my biggest, I did loads of experiments, not all of them which worked. But the key one was I figured out that lots of my time was spent approving training requests, and which was important because, A, we had quite a big training budget at Gemini, So that was a reason you'd join and you'd want to do good training. 
but also it was important because we're consultants, so we were the product. So if if everyone doesn't know about Scala and suddenly all our clients want Scala, then we are, you know, I have a load of people who someone's paying for, but they're not billable. So I was like, I wonder if, if like, I thought if I go peak trust, can I just say to everyone, I will auto approve all your training requests. Just don't take the, take the Mickey, which is a British phrase for like, don't take the piss. Um, be responsible. And it, yeah. And, 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 and it was interesting because it worked because people didn't take the piss, maybe because they kind of respected me or something. Hopefully they did, but it turned out that, and this is where the systems thinking came in. I approved everything, but then, so the email would come to me. I would auto approve it. I wrote a macro in, in, in Outlook, some of the best code I've ever written. <laughs> which you like literally auto approved. Yeah. So approved this thing. And go, yeah. And it would go downstream to finance. The problem was, finance had no clue right and there and every single thing and this is quite a funny story every single like they're asking for a spring training course right they're like spring sounds made up so i don't think we should approve this right spring who calls it <laughs> spring, right or or scar scala what is you know like they had no clue because they had no contextual knowledge and i just they had they clearly figured out i was auto generating these responses so this person was then doing all this due diligence which was causing them pain and once one person asked for um, uh, approval to go on a, a, a blockchain conference on a cruise ship, and they were like, "There's no reason. There is no way they're going on training. We're not paying two thousand dollars to fly them to New York to cruise on a cruise ship to learn about blockchain." Right? That's clearly fake. That was true, and that was the best business case. So, but what I realized was, I couldn't auto approve everything. I needed to auto approve the boring stuff, and then we could tell the lady in finance. Spring is a thing. Scala is a thing. These are the seven courses which are just boring, right? DDD fundamentals. Everyone should learn this thing. But then we would filter, and that's what I also trusted people. Like, if it, here are the criteria where I would want to help you write a proper business case. Come to me with this. I still trust you. If you want to do it, just ask for it, and I will do what I can to help you write the business case. But I know more about how you need to present the opportunity, which presently exists as a cruise departing you know from manhattan at, at you know december the 17th to cruise around the caribbean which happens to be populated with all of the people who know about blockchain in the entire world okay so we could wait we a minute you're that. telling me we could have sunk that ship and exactly. the whole world would have been in a better state oh my right? gosh <laughs> so um yeah this is like six years ago so um yeah, but this, and that was it. So then it was like so it turns out you can trust people I and mean, we still trusted people but you can't just like let go of the reins right because huh. and and especially in well, and you didn't this, let go of the reins. You put the reins in finance's hands, yeah. and they didn't have all the information that yeah, they needed, and, and it sucked the for them. And this is the thing. And so that's the systemic thing. It's like you know, you don't make a change in isolation. There's always the knock-on effects, the side effects, and all of these mm-hmm. kind of things. And I made that lady's life suck. That that was bad. You know, I yeah. didn't, I just I hadn't made my life. It made my life easier, but at her expense. But then well, you iterated and found a design that that worked for both you and her. That's also a place where the advice process would have come in, because exactly. you made a decision that affected somebody, but they they were blindsided by it. They they didn't mm-hmm. know. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so exactly. I want to hear more about the advice process. Since we open mm-hmm. open that door, so, yeah. let's go through it. What so is it? Pro- I don't know anything, so tell me. 
tell me the background. See, advice process is awesome. And I've, I seem to, in some circles, people think I've invented it. I have not invented it. It's in a, Bruce told me about it a long time ago. Bruce, you didn't invent it either, right? It's, it's, no, no. It was in Reinventing Organizations. It's in Reinventing Organizations, right? And yeah. I think maybe Lalu gave it a name because he saw this process in various forms happening in various places because the whole, the best bits of the book are the case studies. So he goes out and he sees this, 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 uh, a nuclear energy generation company in Pakistan. There's a, a fruit picking company in California. There's Patagonia, the clothing company. There's um, a, a group of uh, home care nurses in the Netherlands. And they're totally different. And he finds out how they all work. And one of the things that they use to work, not all of the things, but one of the things is they follow, they don't have consensus-based decision-making. They don't have hierarchically kind of top-down decision-making. They have this thing which manifests in various ways, but it's kind of the advice process. And so the advice process is, and you can fit this awesome for talks because you can fit it on a slide and it terrifies people. The advice process is anyone can make any decision they want as long as, and there's two caveats, they consult all affected parties and people with expertise in the matter. Full stop. So you can, that's the, that could be the advice process, right? Do what well, thou wilt. And the word let go of, the, of, let go of the, the rails. Consult so. needs to be qualified because that makes it sound like any of those people can stop you from doing it, which isn't yes. the case. It, but you have to talk to them and find out mostly how is your decision potentially going to affect the people that it, that it has an impact on and have these experts or well whatever not experts but people who have experienced these things before what information can they give you to, exactly. to help you temper what you're doing yeah exactly and this is so this is where then and this is to go back to the kind of what's the least you can do i was i i've used this now in lots of different ways and i've written blog posts about it so and the, the one that that seems to have caught on is the architectural advice process so you use this for making decisions about what you're going to do with your software in large teams and i've done it at various companies building various things with various people's different skill levels and, it, and it's it's amazing how well it works but the things you realize are just like you said bruce right to, to be able to take a decision and to seek advice you need to properly pretty well how to think about what that real you know what is the problem what is the context of this thing what am i really trying to decide about then you need to figure out, based on that, who are the people who are affected? Because it's not just random. There will be people based on this thing, right? That means these three teams will be accepted or, or affected or whatever. And who are the people with expertise? So you need some kind of level of organizational literacy to know who you should speak to. Because so-and-so did this three years ago. Or this, they did this in another department or whatever. All of that kind of stuff is key. Plus, then you seek the advice, but you need to listen to it. Because otherwise, you're just going through the motions. And not benefiting because the point of the advice is not to make people happy. The point of the advice is to possibly change your decision or to make it more rounded or bring in different horizons or, or even just to know if I do this, there are people downstream from this decision oh, yeah. who it's going to impact and to have compassion for them. Yeah, to have... Totally. The lady in finance, right? This is the thing right. like, this is going to be awesome for us. Oh, their lives are going to suck. Right. And, and this is the thing, but, but you're not again with the advice process, you are under no compulsion to agree with or action any of the advice you are when i've done it i'm i make it very clear that you you very much need to listen and empathize just like you've said and in my experience that always leads to better decisions but you're not obliged you know if some 20 year old architect or you know 20 years plus experienced architect goes yeah we can't do that 
you can totally ignore them. If you're following the advice process as per the rules, mm-hmm. go and do it. So I've been on, there's a client where we did this and we did this really deeply. It was awesome. And, and I, my, I was pairing with this, this director of, of engineering called Pete, um, who lives 18 miles down the road, but it was during COVID. So we never met face to face. So, and we spend hours on zoom each day. Right. And so, and, and we were rolling this out and Pete got it even more deeply than I did. And so sometimes I'd be like frustrated, going, we can just tell them to do this thing. He's like, you can't tell them to do it. That's, you know, that's not part of this thing. You can advise you and you can try and, you know, express it in a way that, that, that helps people do stuff, but you can't tell them to do it. And also there were teams who wanted to do things in which we disagreed with strongly. And I was like, right, can we just stop them? And people was like, no, 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 we can't. If we're doing this properly, as soon as, and you've said this to me, Bruce, as well, in trust organizations, breaking the trust and stepping over that boundary to go right this we was fun for a while but now let's be adults and i'm going to tell you i'm the boss and we're not going to do it if you break that it stops working yeah and so well, people, yeah because you yeah. violate the trust totally yeah, you violate the trust and people you are like yeah, you defaulted well, back oh, to the oh i see hierarchy. you just said yeah exactly. you're going to do this but exactly. we're going back to mba think you know. exactly and this is the thing and so that's that's the journey i went on learning to watch people make decisions which you know are wrong is really painful. But here's the thing. How do you know they're wrong? This is the, You don't even know. You can't see the future. Some of those decisions which teams made were freaking awesome, and we would never have made those decisions because we in our ivory towers knew far better, and they were idiots, and they were just, you know, they just got out of fr- school. It's the same experience that I had with uh, the Java Posse Roundup when people would come and say, oh, we were thinking of doing this, and I would go, sure and they go good because we were just going to do it anyway <laughs> and you go okay this is, and this is the thing working. this is and and so suddenly and the, this is the benefits to people who are traditionally in the i need to tell you what to do role you scale yourself so this is the cool thing about the the, the like people are bored about me saying this because i say it at work all the time i was when i inherited the team i was the manager of technically the manager of 36 people we got told to hire a lot of people because the more people who worked in the java team the more money we could make because we could sell more people to clients. There were 98 people in the Java team directly reporting to me when I left. They weren't directly reporting to me. You can't, 98 people can't directly report to anyone. The team was running itself and I was ostensibly this figurehead who might get shouted out if management didn't understand what we were doing. But what was really interesting was, and this might have been a cultural thing at Capgemini, but maybe other places wouldn't. I wanted to make sure that we had enough air cover that someone wouldn't arbitrarily, again, having spoken to Bruce, I didn't want someone to arbitrarily come in and take this away from us. So I wanted to know what what organizational things did we need to meet that people then didn't care what we were doing as long as we were, you know, so we needed to bill, we needed to have people who were motivated, et cetera, et cetera. And to, it turns out their requirements were pretty light and they didn't really care. And to the extent that the Microsoft team, after a while, came and asked me how we'd done it because they were like, "We're getting stressed. We can't look after all of these people." I'm not, I'm, I'm not looking after the Java team. They're looking after themselves, right. and it was because it just worked. And because we were doing the things we were supposed to do, because everyone was adults, and we were, you know, we were billing, we were training, we were doing good things for clients and customers and stuff. I guess like one of the things that then you figured out was how to how to like fit in this different structure within a traditional structure and create the right, the right interaction model between those two different structures. 100%. Because you, you knew that like it wouldn't be successful to, to, to ignore that you were inside of a traditional organization. Yeah, you can't pretend, right? right? 
yeah, we're yeah. still making money and all this kind of stuff. And it's interesting because ThoughtWorks is a very different type of organization, but there are still there's these interface points. And this is this is the other thing I figured out again from from speaking to someone at the at the roundup. Um, the the skills I had as a software architect, if I'm building a component, right, which needs to fit into an ecosystem, I'm building a microservice that needs to fit in a wider ecosystem. If I, to figure out what that would be, I figure out the dependencies, right? So if I was going to figure out how to do this for an, or an organizational component, right, our team, I'm like, what are the contracts between us and other teams? What do they expect us to do? They expect us to stick to budget. They expect us to do these things. So I basically just, and I stole things from holacracy, like circles and roles, which is basically just a kind of non-hierarchical way of mapping out what the responsibilities and accountabilities of a group of people are. I wrote down all of the things that I seemed to be accountable for, because there were things I got shouted at if I did wrong. And I just, and I, and I wrote them all down and said, right, these are the expectations on us from the rest of the organization and clients. Within that, we can do anything we want. And then I shared it with the team. And so things like we had to do marketing, I didn't want to do marketing. There were people who wanted to pick up marketing. So the people in the team picked up marketing. We had to like work with salespeople to sell new work. I definitely didn't want to do that. There were people who were super keen. So, but knowing what those things were, therefore sales were happy. They had motivated people helping. Marketing were getting us doing, you know, sponsoring conferences and doing talks and all this kind of stuff. So it just, and this was what I mean when they ran, the team ran themselves. There was a few things that nobody wanted to do. Or things they couldn't do. So again, traditionally, I would do pay planning, but I tried to figure out how to make, which is, you know, I get given a pot of money and then figure out who gets what, what pay rise. I tried to make it as transparent as possible within the cultural kind of things of, of the UK. So you can't tell people what people's salaries are, but I made it clear the formula that I was using and the exception criteria and stuff. So when people got pay rises, they knew what the thinking had been behind it. And it worked, right? It was, it was, it was crazy. But it like I was because I kept thinking that at some point crazy. I'm going to get found on out. What? Yeah, yeah. based yeah. on traditional management yeah. thinking, based yeah. on yeah, exactly, based on exactly. the assumption that people won't do anything unless they have a patriarchy telling them what to do. Exactly, and this no. is the thing, and that 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 then, and then I went to Thoris, where it's all kind of a bit make it up as you go along, anyway, in a good way. And like, kind of again, if there's a problem, figure out what it is and solve it and stuff. That you can. I've just pushed that further and further because you can just, you can, it's amazing. It never fails to amaze me if you, if you, and it's not empowering people because empowering is kind of giving them power that you can maybe take back. It's just kind of like clearing the space and leaving it there for them to, to pick up and take the stuff you can do is bonkers. And the, and the things you can software and, and, and to bring it back to software, the software you can write when people aren't constrained by all of these arbitrary things, which is something like I wrote a Twitter thread last weekend around about, like how code can kind of ossify power and how we can use code passively aggressively to to get things to happen that we want and teams right so because like because developers you've got code that you can use to, to, to passively aggressively make a point and then managers have team structures like you're in this team you're not in that team you can't talk to them you can talk to them right. that's how managers passively aggressively structure things and i'm like right with the advice process and like constant team kind of like, you know, like some, some companies you can move teams if you want to and like restructure things and, and terminologies like, uh, sorry, ways of looking at the world, like team topologies and stuff these days, they've given people this tool to kind of think about how we're organized and maybe we should refactor the organization. That was the book I pitched to O'Reilly actually, my first book, culture hacking and org refactoring. Huh. 
but I don't think I don't think it's the time is not ripe for this book yet. But uh, oh, this is the one that that was the first one. one. Yeah. Oh, and they didn't pick that up. They liked it, but they're like, we're not sure how. So I need to figure out make it a bit more crunchy or something. They weren't sure the audience was ready for it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because that sounds to me like it's a good title, right? Yeah. Oh, it's a good oh, title. Culture cracking and ore refactoring. It's very, yeah. yeah, it's catchy. Oh, that's, no, yeah. too, that's got a hook. So you, maybe we should go from there to the new book that you've been thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this that. one is, is a lot more specific, so O'Reilly seem interested in it. So, um, and this is based on, it's a blog post. So things that are cool about working at ThoughtWorks. Number one, you can write a blog post and you can send it to Martin Fowler. And if he thinks it's got a good, got legs he will put it on his blog so so i wrote a blog last year called about the architecture advice process called scaling the the art of of the art scaling the art of architecture conversationally or something like that so i it's all about conversations and that got published and it got picked up so info q did an interview with me and then a podcast about it and then they put it in there um like some some list from 2021 or 2022 2022 because that's this year and it kind of got picked up and various people have kind of asked me to do stuff. I've done talks about it, lead dev and, and coming up next month, Diana Montalian and I are doing a talk around about it at the O'Reilly Superstream architecture Superstream. Um, so it's resonated. Yeah, it's definitely, there's a thing, right? Cause people are, and, and the, the thing that resonates is, um, and it, cause it, it came from all the clients, the, the general direction of travel is these days. And you two have both talked about this lots, right? Um, software is now very modular, small, microservice-based, you know, continuously delivered, um, wrapped around teams, kind of business-focused, all of these things, right? There's lots of moving parts. We used to have one big blob and it was less moving parts, right? And maybe a bunch of people people gathered around it, but they were all gathered around one thing. Now there's a lot of people semi-autonomous and we're all being told that autonomy is good and all this kind of stuff, which I agree, but you know, that's good. But like how (laughs) that's the question, right? Yes, but how, and then, so what you do is you get all this stuff and all the teams are autonomous and all running at a hundred miles an hour and they're shipping stuff and they're continuously delivering to Amazon web services or GCP or whatever, right? Traditional roles like architects are sitting there going, I have no idea what's happening, right? I have no clue. I have no idea what's in production. And most of the people who are building the software have no idea what's in production. So it, it seems like architecture might be the last vestige of waterfall because it's like, here are all the things you need to figure out before you start the project or yeah, else control. it's going to be a problem. And so how do you, how do you kind of change that? And I, I'm fascinated with the idea that you apply the advice process to architecture. Because yeah. usually we think of an architect or architects as, okay, these are the people that know more than everybody. And so yeah. they can make the, you know, what database are we going to use and yeah. et cetera. All of, that. Exactly. Fundamental All of that stuff. And this is the thing. So this is, and this is what's really interesting to me because I don't think that was ever true. What Maybe was it was true. true. The like the art. There's the most senior person knows all of the right answers. Oh no, definitely not with me. So this. So there's a big caveat. Maybe it's just because I was never a very good dev, and I'm probably not a great architect. Maybe that's possibly true. But what's interesting with me is whenever you you know you work on great teams, and and I think Dan was talking about this as well, right? And other people on your podcast have mentioned this too. 
like when you're there is no like or you read the book about the, the folks who like created tcpip and and send mail and smtp you know all of that kind of stuff right there wasn't like a boss who was doing all the designs and the rest are coding they're just all there collaborating with their individual expertise and they're bringing stuff together so we've brought our tooling and our ways of delivery and our architectures to the point where we can cope with that so why gum it up by having one human being who's blessed who tells us what we can do and we can only use mysql we can't use something else because theoretically we're hiring smart people right and it's my experience people are as, as smart as you let them be up to us i've never reached the point where people aren't smart enough to you know you're like oh i keep giving you more of autonomy and it turns out you've filled in you know you've jumped to that and even if you aren't you want you know collectively more than one person is not smarter than more than three people and teams are bigger than three right so so i was like right how do we collectively harvest this thing and get architecture out of the way, but still get the all the expertise, all of the know-how, all of the stuff I have, and that's the advice process. So the way you, that I sell it to people, that there was a, a significant bottleneck in the structures, and you said, "Okay, how can we how can we alleviate this bottleneck?" And by yeah, what's the other word for empowering? Not empowering, but creating that space for people to be smart and make decisions. Yeah. And fail and get things wrong because this is the thing. So, like, so step one was like, right, let's just get out of their way because I was having and it's there's a slide in the presentation where I talk about it, which is like the the Henry Fuseli's nightmare, which is like this romantic painting with this woman who's got like a horse on her chest and a goblin sitting at the foot of the bed, which is exactly right. It's like a classic picture of a nightmare. But I had a nightmare and I woke up and like sweating, not not um in my nightdress, but. And I was like, there was, and I was worried, and I was worried. I was blocking people. I was in their way. So even though they were, they they were smart, but but I, even if I just needed to rubber stamp stuff, like with the training requests, mm-hmm. I was slowing them down. Right? Someone could have had a product three days before, but I had a backlog. Right? So then I'm slowing them down. Or I make a decision, and it's a sucky decision. So they would have done a better decision if I'd have gone nowhere near it, and then I told them something stupid, and they did what I did because told them because it was that. Or you were in power. Yeah, because I was in power. Or I was smart and I did tell them the right thing and then they completely miscommunicated it and who knows what got into production. Because there's a famous or, quote by... Sorry. Or it was the right... You you were smart, you told them the right thing, they did it, but now you have literally disempowered them. Exactly. Even if you're winning, you're losing, right? And this is the thing. You're just like... this. Like, and so I was just like, it's bad everywhere. It's all bad. So how do I get out of the way? And I was like, oh, I wonder if the advice process works. And then we tried it and I was lucky with a few clients where we tried it. And like I say, Pete was one of the ones who were like, right, let's push this as far as this thing will go. That's amazing. So you do that and it totally works. And you add things. So the things we add typically are ADRs because you make people write stuff down because writing down helps you think. And if you like Michael Nygaard, who came up with ADRs, Architectural Decision Records, he, he wrote about the fact that the writing of the decision makes you think about it, right? And then you write it down and you seek advice. So that's good. And then we also have, typically we have a thing called an architecture advice forum. So it's like an architecture review board, but nobody's reviewing anything. They're just giving advice. So you, anyone's still free to do what they want, yeah. but you get this kind of, it's it's really cool. You see a lot, tons of really opinionated developers all talking, but because nobody has to win and no one has to lose because it's not, it doesn't matter. Still my decision. If I hate you, I'll, I'll do my own thing anyway. But because it doesn't matter, like passion stays in, but ego goes out because it doesn't. And I've never seen better discussions in my life. It's well, amazing. yeah. And the other thing is, 
if you presented me with a group of people who, if I ask them a question, they're going to tell me what to do. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be less likely to ask them questions rather oh, yes. than here. I just, I just want advice. I I'm still going to make the decision. Yeah. I, I'm going to be much more likely to ask. For it's a, like the quality of the decisions and the advice and the listening and the learning, like it's learning, like it goes back to the, the, what's it called? The thickest book in the universe. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. No, 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 that's, <laughs> there's, um, there's a book called, what's it called? I can't remember. It's about, it's a, it's basically the, where the word learning organizations comes from. And it's, but it's based on like systems thinking. Um, I'll remember it'll come back to me. But, Basically, they're like, build a learning organization. This is a learning organization because it's like no fear, no, you know, everyone's just offering advice. It works really well. You obviously need to protect it. Again, you're rolling the picture, clearing the space. It's very much like running, you know, in open spaces because you want you, you want everyone to contribute. You want people to not be afraid to say a dumb thing, not be afraid to answer a dumb question, not be afraid to go, I'm a dev and I joined last week, but I was reading a blog post about React something and I'm not so sure it's as good as you think it is. You want all of that stuff, right? So that's good. And then you go off and do it. The thing I've realized most recently, because I've been working with some awesome business analysts, you don't, and like I said before, you don't know, decision, nobody, you don't make a better decision because you're smarter. You just might be more lucky and you've had more experience. And things I'd been coaching people about over and over again was to make decisions as small as possible so you can decide quickly. You have less people to ask permission of, you know, or, you or advice of. And then you can put it into prod and find out, right? So you've got a shorter feedback loop, which is what you, you, you're you both talking about, right? You want to put it in prod and get the feedback loop. Um, but it turns out, like, you're still, with that framing, you think you're making a decision that's going to be right or wrong. What you should instead think about is what's the smallest experiment I can do, which comes back to, you know, all the stuff you keep talking about with happy path. It's like, let's stop trying to be right. Let's just say, right, we think we need to go in this direction. What's the smallest thing I can do to step in this direction? Architecturally, at the whole, you know, at a system-wide level or at a single, you know, the whole thinking scales. And this is why it's good because devs go, oh, I get that. I do that all the time with code. We're like, right, let's, the same thing. Stop trying to be right. Start trying to learn and try and make things reversible and small. You know, because in the old days, there was big monolithic, one big deploy. We deploy it at the end of the year and, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Lots of decisions were irreversible. And all the definitions of architecture, it's irreversible decisions. It's the big decisions. It's the, all this stuff. Those aren't as true as we used to think they are. There's loads of stuff. So now we can experiment. Now we can turn stuff off. We can turn stuff on. We can add stuff, change stuff. We can try a whole new language and build an entire new microservice in, in something we just heard about because it sounds cool. And if we don't like it, we just replace it with something else. It's not a bit, you know, it's not like we've decided to put the whole company on Kotlin or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like yeah, it's really interesting. It's the the that exp and I have a lot of trouble with this in my own life just doing experiments because there's baggage left over from experiments, there's the sense of failure if they don't work even though I know half maybe half your experiments should fail or else you're yeah. not really experimenting. All that stuff and yet it's that like if you say okay, small and reversible then it's like, oh, okay, I can actually, it's not as much of a risk to, to do that experiment. And if your goal is to learn, not yes. to be right, then, right. then it creates yeah. a different mm -hmm. yeah, motivation. Yeah. And this is, the, this is the thing. So maybe this is, you should maybe get Diana on this podcast one time because Diana's yeah. amazing. But um, Diana's got this talk and this workshop that she does, and she's also 
in some some form of book relationship with O'Reilly. Her thing is about non-linear thinking, and she's like, and she's like, for decision making, there's decision making in the individual level and bigger, but in a systemic level, and all these kind of things. But what's interesting and things I've learned from listening to her, just what you said, there is an emotional self-awareness element of doing these things. And if you're not self-aware of you in the context of making a decision, there'll be fear. And like, so I spoke to, interesting, I spoke to Rebecca Versbrock after I'd done the keynote. We did, I hadn't mentioned that. We did a keynote about this, the architecture advice process at DDD Europe. And we asked the 800 people what they thought about it in the audience, which was awesome. But afterwards for Rebecca Versbrock, who's one of the original um plop people one of the she wrote some of the amazing original patterns books she's like og like software engineer she said whenever we do adrs we add how do you feel about this decision as a as a standard thing on the template and she's got papers about it she sent me these papers because she's like the emotional background the state of how safe you feel about the decision is as important as all of the other stuff whether or not kotlin is better than you know rust and i was like it blew my mind. And same thing with Diana. She's like, if you're not even aware of the options you're 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 avoiding thinking about in your head, then you are curtailing yourself. And are you curtailing yourself because you're scared of the architect who's going to tell you you're stupid? All of this stuff. And I was like, that's smart. Because I think I'd gone on that because I'm a consultant. I'm used to learning stuff and not knowing things and being and making stuff up as I go along. Because I go to clients who are, you know, more about their specifics than I do every single time. But I'm blessed because I get that. Other people don't, right? So you've got to give people the awareness to say, right, just like you said, Bruce, right? Failing is not free. People who are good at it and learn it have learned to enjoy it and have learned to to to, to thrive off it. But that's a learned skill, right? Nobody wakes up thinking, I'll fail today because it's awesome. They've learned the fact that that's good. So, and so Diana does, she even does like it's hilarious watching it. She makes people do um, mindfulness meditation in her workshops, which is like a full of developers, right? And then she makes them do mindfulness, which is like the opposite of what they think they're there to learn. Because she's like, you need to you know, be aware of who you are right now about to make this decision. And I was like, that's interesting. Wow. That's a big Because just be unspoken <laughs> stuff that you're not thinking about. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this, um, th- you, you skipped over this thing that you did at the conference where you suddenly yeah. got feedback from 800 people or whatever. What, what was the, how did that work? So that was awesome. So that was, so DDD Europe, maybe some people listening have heard of it or go to it, but it's, there seems to be two DDD communities. There's a North America DDD community, which and is we're talking about domain driven design. Yeah. Here. So domain driven design, Eric Evans, blue book, uh, Vaughan Vernon, red book. There seems to be, there's a North American community seems to be centered around Denver. There's loads of good stuff in Denver. And then there's a European community, which is centered around Amsterdam. So the guy who runs DDD Europe, which this year was the biggest DDD conference in the world, which which he happily announced. Actually, the biggest DDD conference in the world was DDD Europe. The day before, which was DDD Fundamentals, was the second biggest DDD conference. And the third biggest was the workshop day, which happened before it. So he was super happy. Um, DDD apparently is coming back. But um. He loves experimenting with things. So he had this idea, so it wasn't our idea. He was like, what if we had a keynote where everybody participated? And we were like, okay. And then he, I'd submitted an idea where I would do a talk about the advice process. And he went, can we take 98% of your talk away and just leave one slide, which is this is how you could make architectural decisions. And why don't we ask the audience how they would feel if some lunatic consultant like me turned up effectively and suggested this thing? And then 
we asked them uh, what they would, how they would improve it, and I can't remember. Oh, the, the third one was just to check into how they were feeling. So we only asked them three questions. But but Matthias uh, got this guy Mike and this guy Dan to come and facilitate, and then we facilitated it. They set it up. We kind of led people into the questions, and then uh, um, we got in real time we got people to fill in a form which would put stuff into spreadsheets. So we were standing on stage watching these 800 people tell us what they thought about the advice process and tell us what they thought about why it would or wouldn't work and how it could be improved in real time. And then we, me and, and Diana and, and Gayathri, another of my, my colleagues, we were all on stage and we would respond to it and, and, and summarize it. So we had to summarize 800 responses in, in the space of four minutes. So what did you hear? Where, where, where so it was insane. It was, it was, it was, so it was in, there was more people than I thought were already doing it. Because this is the thing, as as I said, the advice process, it wasn't even really invented by Lalu. He just kind of identified the aspects. So there is this kind of collaborative but not consensus-based decision-making, which seems to be a way of organizing that human beings have, right? So it's not democratic. It's not hierarchical. I'm the boss, so I decide. There's another way. So lots of teams seem to have evolved from this. And it's interesting. People who've done startups are like, that's just how the startup works. Because there's the bits we know about and we just do this thing. So lots of people are like that. There was another big thing was a massive theme was fear of people who don't know enough to make decisions, which I could relate to, right? You know, you're like, but what about the stupid people, right? Which I think is invalid, as I've said, right? Who's to say you're correct, right? But, you know, in any one decision, who knows? So therefore, you know, and, and we can't predict the future anyway, so let's stop trying to control the future. Let's just step one step forward. Um, But the big thing I learned, well, sorry, the meta thing we learned was Asking, a, you know, not doing a keynote where you preach to people, but just asking them to engage and giving you their thoughts and feedback was amazing. Like it really, it set the scene and this is what Matthias wanted to do. It opened up people into like a questioning mindset for the whole rest of the conference, right? So they didn't go in and like, I'm going to listen. They, it was still an eyes front conference, but it very much changed the dynamics. So they were more questioning, more kind of engaged. They were like. And I would think uh, that the hallway conversations would have amped up from it was amazing. You nucleated that. What was wild is that that your keynote essentially was taking the advice process and turning it into something that you did. So instead of talking about the advice process to people, you just had them experience it. Essentially, we did. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So this is so I there's a which I think didn't get enough. I need more Twitter followers or something. But I tweeted something about like this this keynote is meta just before it happened. And it didn't get enough. I think it deserved far more attention. But it was, like you say, it was exactly this. We used the advice process to tell people about the advice process. And so this, like, so some people were terrified of it. Some people thought it was awesome. Some people were already doing it. But that was the thing. It was, again, 800 people, they, like, they, they got, they got on board. And it wasn't, you know, we didn't give them three weeks to think about it. We just kind of told them that it was, it was going to be a different type of keynote. And then over the space of 50 minutes, we introduced this topic to them. And it was very, that was what was interesting for me. It's like, because you talk about this a lot, Bruce, right? There's, there's, there are the ways we organize, right? That management consultants tell us how to do. We're not like, that's quite a thin crust. I think it's quite interesting to, you know, and we've, we've, all three of us have seen this at the, at the open spaces conferences, right? It's not for everyone. Some people just don't gel with it. But it's not that far away from the surface of, of the human beings who do turn up to these things to go, oh, okay, right, I'm not told what to do and I can do anything I choose to. And then, so therefore I need to take a bit more care. And it's not that far away. And that's what's really interesting to me as well. Yeah. 
I thought bringing this approach into clients would, I'd have to justify it and then go to meetings and get approval and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of just, I mostly now do it. I tell them I'm going to do it. And I'm like, let's, we'll try and start in the small and then we'll build it up. Everywhere I've done it, they're like, right, that other team, which you weren't even supposed to have any any remit over, have asked how they can adopt it to. And I'm like, here's all this stuff. Just go and do the thing. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not, people aren't, they're just, and I saw a quote this like Deming said something like 94% of the things that are wrong in organizations is the system, not the people. If you change the system, you know, maybe 6% of it is because there's some jerks in your organization, right? Who will be jerks wherever you are? You know, they'd be jerks back in Neolithic times, right? Yeah, but 94% a structure like that, like... I think, discourages jerks from even joining. But this is this is what's interesting because I'm constantly watching out for this to go wrong because I'm I'm like maybe I haven't been around long enough to see maybe the force of my personality enthusiastically telling people how fun this is just drowns that out. But I'm still in touch with Pete. They're still doing it. They've shipped their product. They've got their four key metrics up and running. They're like their four key metrics are so good. They had to um, to slow down because they were releasing so frequently, product couldn't keep up, so they had to slow down. <laughs> so You're they're like releasing too frequently. Exactly. They're like, just slow down, right? We can't keep up. And 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 this is just and this is like hopefully not being rude about the you know they were just a standard UK company who were building software for insurance insurance brokers, right? Yeah. They weren't Google, they weren't Facebook, they weren't Netflix. They were just a bunch of people trying to write good software, ship it in a good way to you know and incrementally deliver stuff. They weren't, you know, you know, some highly paid, you know, city of London people who are like doing financial trading systems. And they were just regular devs like me. And that was exciting. That was when you clear that space for people, their code was better. They're, they were enjoying, you know, they just were enjoying the stuff they were doing. And that's, that's the yeah. bit that I like the best, right? You're just like, you don't even, you know, we don't come and make people better as consultants. We just get stuff out of the way so they can be, it's like the, there's a quote from, um, so Joe Sondow used to keep saying this, you know, like they are Netflix. Someone asked the, is it Reed Hastings? Who's the person who started yeah. Netflix? It is mm -hmm. Reed Hastings. It's like, where'd you find all these amazing people? And he was like, I just hired them from you. And he did, right? He just like, he like just built a company, which amazingly to me as well, still seems to largely have the culture from what I know about it, where it hasn't really collapsed under its own weight, right? Loads of things collapse under their own weight. They still seem to be doing stuff, right? So yeah, given the right environment, people flourish and are happy. <laughs> and yeah, which shouldn't seem to be complicated, but it just it does seem to be. Uh... Well, when you're motivated primarily to at at the top level to um, maximize quarterly profits, then the yeah. other stuff gets lost and then you get confused. Well, we're paying people. Why aren't they happy? Yeah, exactly. Like, Should we pay them more? Oh, I don't yeah. want to do that. But if that's what takes to make them, I mean, that's, it's just the one dimensional thinking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting actually, because the last place we did this um, was a bank. And I think, Probably like they would, the, the CEO would probably be self aware enough. He was like, he was a self confessed control freak. He worked in the finance team and all this kind of stuff. So he was like, he had very specific criteria. But the CTO who I was pairing with, she said, look, just give me a bit of space and I'll show you. You know, we'll be delivering all the stuff you want, but we'll do it our way. And then we came in and did like inverse Conway and all of the standard thought work stuff. Um, and it was, he didn't care. Like he was like, okay, cool. Like we had to help him let go of the reins, right? Because he was like, mm, control freak. 
but we're like, the more you let go, the more you will see this happen. The more you will see, he's like, why don't people, I see these problems. Why don't someone come and fix these problems? We're like, if you let go, people, you've got to give them a little bit of space to find the problems and step into the gaps. You know, and they would, so therefore they'd write the software. They'd fix the things. They'd see the, they, they, they cared, right? They did not care. And it was really interesting. So then, and then he was like, his inclination was always to be like, they're like, no, just let it go. Mm. Let oh, it go. yeah. These people have I got mean, it. You're talking life work, learning experience kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Not something you can just flip off. With yeah. The, this with is the, the thing. They were self-confessed. And they were, God bless them, they were trying really hard. Um, and they were quite good at telling us when we were like, no, you can't. You know, we were, we got a pretty good relationship where we could say, you need to just let go. But, um, it's hard right if that's if, yeah. like you say if you've grown up in this this is how i do it i just tell people what to do and then they run around and do it so we didn't them. get i don't uh, at least maybe i missed it did we get to what book you were oh no in? sorry so we had, so therefore <laughs> so therefore right sorry meanwhile back at the book so but so my big thing has been because again like the failure of agile and all of these things it the theory sounds awesome but you're like yeah but how and that's why I like doing consulting, because if I can't do, I'm not a hand wavy consultant. I'm not a, despite the fact I'm waving my hand, PowerPoints and leave consultant. I've tip, it, I like being around for a year and a half plus, because the things I say at the start will come back to haunt me, right? If I'm being a jerk. Lots of other times you can say stuff and then leave, right? And by the time it blows up, you're well gone. So the big thing is, and that this is what I pitched to O'Reilly, which is now going to turn into a, a first a three-hour training course but the, the pitch is you've heard about this thing it sounds magical and awesome how on earth do we do it how on earth do we set up the architectural advice process and how do we teach everyone to make decisions how do we um not crush them as soon as it starts to get up and running or so as soon as it hits a rough patch and all this kind of stuff and so that's that's what i'm working on at the moment so i'm trying to so and interestingly o'reilly because it's pitched, it's aimed at architects and people who want to be architects, right? So they can solve their problems and get out of the way. But O'Reilly said, why don't you do the three-hour training course to be for developers? So it's like, as a developer, how to make your own decisions, right? So you can step forward and say to an architect, look, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. Like, I've already thought about this. And yeah, that's, that's really not a bad... That's not a bad approach. I, I feel like some of my best work has come come written... If I'm writing something in conjunction with giving uh, seminars on it, the feedback really mm -hmm. informs yeah. the quality of the book. Yeah. Exactly, and this is the thing, and it's 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 really good. So therefore, because because they're quite good at giving you feedback actually as well. But um, because you'd hope they were because they're O'Reilly. But I've also because I've spent time working with a load of awesome product managers, and you'll know this, James, right now as a product manager. Their big question is like, if you're about to spend three months writing a training course, that's a long time to write a sucky course. What's the smallest thing you can do to find out that this training course? So number one, you write the the the, the modules list, and you go, it's called this. You'll learn this. It's called, the next module. It's called this. Then you share it with, and this is why I'm lucky at ThoughtWorks. I can share it with a bunch of colleagues, and they give me immediate feedback. What's that? What don't even understand. And so that thinking is super super interesting because they're like well there's a leap here how do i get here or, i don't even care why do i care about this that kind of thinking which again is like with code right you're like what's the smallest thing i can write to kind of make sure that i'm doing something valuable using that thinking and then when i get to like when i've written one module then i'll be able to run it and all this kind of stuff what was cool about riley was when i wrote my ddd training course i needed to run it with a large audience and so i said um i did like a 
not like a Black Lives Matter course, but I was like, can I run it for free with your blessing, but just for people who identify as, as black? And they were like, cool. So I ran it and I teamed up with DDD, no, virtual DDD community. And they, they announced it and we just ran it for free. Because again, you want to do, you know, get the feedback and stuff. The audience were awesome. They gave me great feedback. Some of it sucked. I fixed it. Because it's, like you say, Bruce, it's writing a book is, I'm t- you could spend so much time writing a book. And then discover that it's yeah. How do you break it down into small iterative <laughs> tasks small. and yeah. especially if you want it to be useful, right? Because that's the thing. Every single section of this book should be like, you know, none of it should be like, rah, 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 right? Here's a thing that I want to talk about. I kind of get those off my chest with Twitter threads. What it needs to be is, if you want the extra thinking, go to Twitter. But if you want, you know, this is do this, then do that. This is this. You will then encounter this problem. And so I'm kind of, it helps you think about it structurally, and that's. You know, I was talking about the kind of this, the making decisions, and then you get to the point where it kind of doesn't matter. What you're really doing is experiments. So that's kind of the structure of what I think the book will be. Probably not the training course, because I don't think you can get there in three hours. But the book is like, here is the, the black and white rules. Here is the advice process. This is what it means. Then this is how it's you like would really rain out do the it. system. It's like, yeah. here here is the system that creates an environment where people can be happier, make better decisions, be more productive, exactly, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next bit is, here's what's going to go wrong. And then it's all the other stuff, right? So it's kind of like, first half is patterns, the second half is anti-patterns. Okay. And it's like, and this is including, and this is the, the like I mentioned before, and because I'm, when we do this, and we've done this the last two clients, let's put the bits in place and then let's experiment with removing things. Let's not experiment with adding things. Let's take things away and see if it still works. Oh, it's just, it's fallen apart. Let's put that thing back. That's because it's, I've done it in four clients now. Um, and other colleagues have done it in other places. Um, and other people have told me they've been doing it in other outside of ThoughtWorks. Um, Every time it's totally different because it's cultural, right? It's it's based on the architecture you've got. It's based on the history you've got. It's based on the code base you've got. It's based on whether you all sit in the same room. There's so many factors that are different. Yeah. It's, well, it's, and I think you're, you're, uh, you left out uh, the, uh, you know, what hierarchical culture are you going into, which I keep mm-hmm. thinking, well, this is why, I mean, you briefly said the failure of Agile. And I would I would say the failure of Agile comes from, the fact that um, maybe your environment wants too much control and can't let yeah. go of it, and so Agile gets turned upside down. I, I, totally, and that's—I think that's—I've definitely stolen this from listening to this podcast, right? And and conversations you and I've had, Bruce. The illusion I want because Agile didn't deal with the illusion of control kind of played up to it as well right it's like yeah you can go faster and well, agile didn't say you can go faster but it's like you get to your destination more efficiently and people heard that but it didn't say but we don't mean it will give you more control the whole point is giving up control because you don't really know what you want because you know it, it, you know you don't really know what you're building right but software is awesome because we can we can iterate it's not like building a car we ship a car and it turns out it isn't the car anyone wants we can ship a, you know like a software product in like two days right? Get it in front of people and then find out if it sucks or not. We don't optimize enough for that enough. That's why I want the second part of this, whatever the thing is. It needs to be, it's like, it is not this. It will never be this. And actually you supercharge it by never trying to get that. That's where I think you really unlock stuff. It's just like, this is a... Well, that to me sounds like possibly the biggest challenge because (laughs) if you go up against 
an entrenched, um, you know, patriarchal system where the people at the top like where they are and don't want to change, then you might as well not do it. Yeah. No, I do. I think, and that's, this is the, hence the latest Twitter thread that I wrote about like code as power. Um, because someone recommended, I read there's an awesome blog post called "The Tyranny of Structurelessness." So it's how even when it looks like, and it's a, it's a, it's a, you should Google it actually. It's, it's, um, it's a famous blog post, and I think a book written by this lady called Joe Freeman, who was active in the second wave of feminism in New York, I think, or somewhere in North America in the 1970s. And and the blog post is basically, we thought we, you know, we were doing feminism, we were changing the world, and even in feminist circles, right, where we're super enlightened, every second conversation is about the nature of gender and all this kind of stuff, right, and and the patriarchy and things. Even within that, the white heterosexual Anglo-Saxon Protestant kind of thing, because we had no structure. There was a structure. There were people who were who had the telephone and has more spare time because they've got childcare for their kids, and they got access to a photocopier because their husband, you know. They naturally became. There wasn't a structure. There was an unofficial structure. There was a there was a a hidden structure, and that's there. And I think that's if this is to succeed, and that's why I kind of want to put more of this in. It's got to be aware of all of those dynamics because those dynamics, especially in code, right, which is pretty much biased towards a certain demographic, if it doesn't acknowledge that from the start, it'll always be crashing into something. So. Yeah, but it's un. I mean, a lot of that stuff is unconscious. You know, you do things. And you're not thinking, oh, is this, you know, am I am I acting from a position of power here? You mm-hmm. don't. You're just going, well, this is the way it should be. And exactly. And it's so hard to get in touch with that. And it's not comfortable. Yeah. And that's the one thing that got pointed out to me by Bruce Mallon. And that's she's awesome at pointing this stuff out. She's got this quote, which is kind of like I'm going to garble the quote, but I put it in my presentation again about the advice process. Her. And this is where the blog post, the conversationally part of the blog post comes from. She's like, architecture fundamentally is not about um, making the decisions or even making sure that the right decisions are made, but it's about making sure that the right conversations are happening with the right people at the right time. That's architecture. Everything else is nice to have. And I was like, like blue, like mental okay, especially now right and she wrote this along like not that long ago but you know relatively that's before things speeded up and we're continuously delivering 17 times in all of it's, it's going faster but i think she's right right and it's making sure and therefore i think being aware of who's in the room and who's being listened to and whose voices are i think it's it's super important because right otherwise like you say it just ends up naturally following this is tyranny of structurelessness right because that's what we were taught from the cradle Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's what we fall back on. And yeah, I mean, and it's true with nonviolent communication too. You're taught there's winning yeah. and there's losing and not, not about, you know, conversation doesn't come into it. Mm. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, this is, and that's, and, and, and you can see that, and this is my latest kind of thing. You can see it in code. Cause I'm luckily as a consultant, I get to see code bases all the time. You can read, co- you can see when there was a fight between two teams, you can see when one team won, you can see when someone clearly thinks this is the way, you know, someone who last wrote code when it was MVC and, you know, and, and Java AWT, right. You can see that in code bases. It's ossified like this, the stratification of like the power struggles. Cause huh. you get like, yeah, maybe I've just seen too many code. It'd be, bases. Fun to be like, like a code archaeologist you know like go into the 
the code bases and be like, oh, here's what happened. And here's, yeah, the, yeah, culture, you totally, here's the culture that existed or maybe still exists. You can exists. totally see it. And you're just like, you can see the remnants or like the half-hearted attempts, like everything. And it's there in the code. And you're like, oh. Because it's never, this is the thing. Nobody writes bad code on purpose, but they tr- they're trying to do a thing. Maybe, and they don't succeed because maybe they just haven't got enough experience. But in my my experience, it's more they didn't get the space or the time or the the support to do something. Yeah, there's a phrase in nonviolent communication, which is everybody's doing the best with yeah. what they have. And like, definitely is true with coding. So you can go, oh, this seemed like a poor decision, but you know, it's the best that the, that person knew. And we all have earlier us's that made decisions we thought were the right way of doing things. And now we find embarrassing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, let, never be true in 20 years and yeah, exactly. with, with our, is, yeah. ourselves today. Yeah, exactly. Cause you like, especially cause this is, I think it's maybe again, because I'm definitely not a great developer, not a great um, coder, but like, so like, yeah, when presented with my own code, even three days down the line, you're like, what? That's, <laughs> Yeah, because again, Bruce, Bruce, you know, James, you and, and all three of us have talked about. I'm interested in how it feels to write code and how it feels to kind of experience your code and other people's code. That as well is just because there is there is so much. It's more. It's not a purely intellectual activity. There's so many other things going on when code gets written. It's that's to me is very interesting. So it's like a big. Well, yeah. Well, that's been. This has been truly enlightening and. Yeah, thank you for sharing all that wisdom with us. So. No, it was awesome. It was a great time to catch up and chat. And yeah. it'll be really interesting to see where all this goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems Hopefully. like we're at the at the beginning of a, a movement that yeah. could make the world of software better for a lot of people. Because mm-hmm. this is the thing: it's like there's definitely a lot of people have come out of the woodwork and gone. I too am worried. You know, the, like I said, my nightmare—the bit where I'm blocking, I'm getting in the way, and even if I'm doing the right thing, it's not having the impact. There's a lot of people who feel that. Yeah, I think that's, um, yeah. that's yeah. the thing. So, yeah. Uh, well, and also, I think it feels like this is something that could, you know, there are experiments that we've done in the software world that have percolated out into the world in general, the real world, like blockchain on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a counterexample, but but um, but well, I mean, even agile, you know, whether it's been a success or a failure, it has affected um, general um, business. Completely. I think. Yeah. And so, this is the thing, actually. That's the secret. If I'm being really honest, the thing I really like when we first talked about teal organizations, trust organizations, advice process, and all this kind of stuff in in Crested Butte, I was like, that's amazing. I'd love to work in that. You could, one lens on this is, it's just me getting the excuse to do this as much as possible and show people how good it is. So it could be purely selfish. Because, but you're right, it works. It just, it works. There's no, this stuff works. And I think that's the cool bit, like you say, if it, if it, if it works in a few small places and then maybe those places other people copy them and stuff, then that might be. Yeah, in software, I think we're used to being more experimental. Hmm, and so we're more willing to try stuff like this, but then it's a test bed that the, you know, the rest of the, cause I, I listen to, you know, people saying, Oh, nobody wants to work anymore and we're offering them more money and they still won't come to work. 
And, you know, my thought is, have you thought of changing the rest of the things? Maybe it's not about the money. Maybe it's yeah, about it's the work. creating a place where people really thrive. Hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a, that seems like a step too far. I don't know. It sounds like something I can't control. So yes, you know, you introduce this to a, a bunch of places and, you know, write your book about it and everything. And that could start influencing other people yeah, to hopefully. go, huh, what if we made work really a fun place to be? What, what, oh, no, wait. Oh, that's crazy. What if, yeah. what if we just let people be get on with the right stuff and just help uh, them? not get in their way all the time saying yeah, exactly. this is going to be we got a schedule it's going to be on schedule gotta gotta make sure it's you know <laughs> as, the, yeah, those precisely. are the important things yeah precisely yeah okay well well, well thank you andrew yeah so no, great amazing. to catch up yeah. Yes, it Good was. And, and we hope to see you if you can convince your current oh, yeah. employer to send you to Crested Butte again. Or, yeah, or so. you know, we talked about this, having some kind of uh, gathering or summit or something around these ideas. Yes. Yeah, no, 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 totally. There are, there's a load of people who think that is a great idea. Well, I'd sure love to make that happen. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So, With this, yeah sorry, in. not to start another thing, but there's, there's Interestingly, there's there's a there's a guy I know in Norway who um, Trond Hjortland. Oh yeah, yeah. I there's follow. a load of stuff that he's been digging into, like because there's been research in this from the 50s. So his mm -hmm. if you follow him on Twitter, he's just tweeting out papers from the 60s, 70s about democratic organizing, like different ways of organizing. So there's there's like you say, it's cross discipline. It's not just software people. It's just maybe we get away with it more because people tolerate us with our crazy experiments. So. <laughs> Yeah. This, yeah, yeah, well, this definitely anyway, let's let's continue talking about that because that the the whole idea excites me. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you for all your time, and um, this was this was a great podcast. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. Hey.